I invite you to take your Bibles tonight and turn with me to uh, Hosea chapter 11. And we're going to turn our attention tonight to uh, Hosea 11 verses 1 through 10. Let's hear now the inerrant and infallible and authoritative word of the living God. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, He shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Admah? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will come, I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will return them to their homes declares the Lord thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Please pray with me. Our Lord and our God, I cannot add to what Pastor Danny already has asked from you, but we simply confess that apart from the working of your Holy Spirit, these are merely words to us. And so we pray and ask you, Lord, to condescend to us, cause your Spirit to work within us, convict us of sin, Convict us also of your love for us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's interesting as we walk through the book of Hosea how God has chosen these illustrations um, for us that communicate His person to us. If you remember at the very beginning, He chose uh, Hosea and Gomer. He chose the image of an adulterous wife to depict his relationship with Israel. And as we come to Hosea chapter 11, he's chosen imagery again, uh, the imagery of a parent with a, with, with a child. And, and many of us can, or, or many can relate uh, to trying to parent a wayward child. Uh, my mom can. If they gave out blue ribbons for lectures, she'd have many. I was the subject of a lot of her lectures coming up, uh, but thankfully I was the subject of her prayers, 
And God in His own time drew me back to Himself, even though I spent uh, a lot of time uh, wandering far from Him. But why do you think it is that God chooses this language of a parent to communicate with His people, and especially here written down in His Word? Well, He does so because He is a God who both is above the heavens and who comes down to His people. And He wants to to convey Himself to you in a way that you can comprehend. And so He chooses the imagery of a parent to depict His relationship with His people in the midst of His anger toward Israel. God reminds us of His love. That even though He is disciplining this people, His love is still there. And we must not forget that. This chapter provides us with an insight into the unshakable love of God for His people in the Lord Jesus Christ. It cannot be taken away. You think about that passage in Romans 8. What can separate us from the love of God? At the end of it, Paul says, can even you separate yourself from God's love? No, you can't. Your eternal security as His people does not rest on your righteousness. It rests in God's eternal and sovereign choice of you. He has chosen to set His love on you. Before you ever came to be, He loved you and chose you as His own. And for them whom God has chosen to save, assurance of salvation rests upon God's unchanging nature. It's fascinating as we read this passage, I don't, I don't know if you noticed it, but, but it really breaks down nicely into a God is looking into the past and He sees His people. He says, there you were. I loved you when you were a child. And then it looks at the present. Israel sort of, if you will, in their adolescent stage. They should be at adulthood but now, but, but they are in this rebellious stage. Uh, there they are, and God is dealing with them. But it also looks finally to the future. So we have the past and the present and the future in this text. And so the way that we will deal with this is just in three, three simple points. God demonstrates His love by calling you to Himself. God demonstrates His love by disciplining you. And God demonstrates His love for you by keeping you for Himself for all eternity. And so God's people should be assured of His love for them. Here's a simple way to think of it. For this life and for the life to come. In the midst of this indictment, remember that we've been going through almost like a legal document. Uh, my children, I've jokingly told you, have asked me, Dad, as we read Hosea, are, we gonna, are you going to be saying whoredom again a lot from the pulpit? <laughs> uh, we have dealt with that. And, and God, again, He's using these words. You can relate to that. You can understand what that means. And you can, you can relate to Hosea and the pain of his heart as he went and selected this woman and set his love upon her. And yet she left him. He brought her back. He gave her everything she needed. He protected her. He provided for her. And there she went again. And this is a picture of God's love for his people. 
And here we see him as a father, not a husband, though he is, but also as a father to us. And so appreciative of Pastor Danny's prayer tonight, uh, reflecting on God's fatherhood. But let's notice, first of all, in verses 1 through 4, God demonstrates his love by calling you to himself. This is verses 1 through 4 of Hosea chapter 11. Look at this beautiful verse. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. Now, if you are uh, uh, familiar with the Scriptures, you know that this is repeated in another place. Matthew quotes this verse in chapter 2, verse 15. Do you remember when? It is when the Holy Family fled not from Egypt, but when they fled to Egypt. And when they arrived, there it was said that this prophecy was fulfilled. Out of Egypt I called my son. Now, why is that important? Well, where was Egypt, figuratively speaking, in the days of Christ's incarnation? It was Israel. They had abandoned their Lord. And now they had become like Egypt. Well, here, Hosea is reflecting on the early days of Israel. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. And so the first thing that we see here, as God is demonstrating his love, is that God delivered Israel in love. Notice in verse 1, he delivered them in love. We remember that Israel's entire existence is God's work. Israel does not exist apart from the work of God. We trace it back to Genesis chapter 12. There God went to Abram, worshiping foreign gods off in Ur of the Chaldees with his family, hundreds of thousands of people. And there he said to them, leave, and I will make you a people. There was no Israel before that time. Israel came forth out of Abraham, God's chosen man. He called Abram, he gave him sons, he changed his name, and he preserved this people. And so this section reflects on God's parental relationship with Israel. He formed them. In in a sense, he gave birth to them. They belonged to him. And so he uses this tender language of a parent to describe his relation to them. I loved you. Now, as we think about this, we can make a connection. Why does God love them? As children, to whom he gave birth, as it were, why does he love them? Very simply, he chose to set his love upon them. This is the first principle in the formation of the visible church that God went and he selected Abraham himself and set his love upon him and his descendants. And so he brought them helpless. This is the picture, isn't it? They're a helpless people. They're not a people who can, who can help themselves. I was, uh, we were driving out, um, I think it's Highway 98 toward Williamson's Nursery and there's a little church over there on the left with a sign that said, God, uh, uh, God works for those who work for him. <laughs> I think what a sad thing that that's the gospel being preached there. No, the picture is that God comes to you when you can't do for yourself. He changes your diapers in the faith. I love the hymn that we sang tonight. Even when you weren't even aware of his overtures of mercy in your life, he was there working. 
Matthew, as I said, referred to this in chapter 2, verse 15, to demonstrate how Israel's life pointed toward the life of Christ and the tender love that God has for them. God delivered Israel in love, but He also kept them in love. Part B, here under our first point. Notice that even though their sin multiplied, what did God do? Did He forsake them? Did He run away with them? Did He start a plan B? Did He say time for a do-over or a mulligan? No. He stuck with His people. Why? Because He set His love upon them. This is the message to you. God set His love upon Him. It is a covenantal love. There's a Hebrew word designated just for this. To say God's unfailing love rests upon you. It's a special kind of love. Well, what was going on? We notice that in verse 2, the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. So this fast forwards us in the life of Israel a couple of thousand years to the time of Ahab. And now you all know that Ahab was not a very good king. And we read about him in 1 Kings chapter 16, this particular word. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri. Now, Omri was a horrible king himself. Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the ways of Jeroboam of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, Etbaal, notice that name, and went and served Baal or Baal and worshipped him. And what did he do? Well, he set up altars for Baal. And there was inaugurated in Israel the worship of this false god, Baal, the god of fertility. But God still did not abandon His people. He was still with them, still merciful, still providing for Israel. God was keeping them. We see again also that God taught Israel in love. Notice verses 3 and 4. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. You see the, the language of a child. You can picture that. Some of you remember teaching a child to walk. And the frustrations that came when they learned to run. <laughs> God was teaching them how to walk. How is he doing that? He's putting up the bumpers. You think of Moses at Sinai, giving them the law, teaching them how to walk. This is the way. Walk in it. It's as a father teaching, giving a, a training to a child. Here's your walker. Walk this way. Keep my ways. He teaches his loved ones in his ways God does not leave us children in the faith, but He causes His Word to bear fruit in us. He's teaching them how to walk, taking them up by their arms, healing them even when they don't know it, putting the band-aid on the scraped knee, bringing them along. This is the demonstration of God's tender love in calling His people to Himself and keeping them. So we ask the question again, what did Israel do to merit God's love in this way? The simple answer is nothing. I think that's important. What can Israel do to keep God's love in this way? Nothing. They didn't earn it then, and they didn't earn it now. 
and, and in a similar way, we don't get to choose our children, do we? <laughs> Sometimes maybe we wish that we could go down to Babies R Us and pick out the ones that look decent. But God does have a choice. God does have a choice. And he exercised his sovereign choice in drawing you to himself. There's no emphasis on Israel, no emphasis on their brightness. In fact, we read, you were a little people and I made you great. If you belong to him, it is because he first loved you. And we tell you that not to belittle you, but so that you will have a great confidence and a hope in the love of God. It is a, and it's a changeless love. He chose you to be his own dear child. And the fruit of the Spirit then, as he works in you to bear fruit, is a certification of sorts that you belong to God, that he loves you. God demonstrates his love to you as a child by calling you to himself. But secondly... Notice God demonstrates his love by disciplining your sin. Now we move into the adolescent years. Now that's a terrible phrase. We've invented the whole idea of adolescence in our day. It used to be that you turned 11 years old and you began to work for a living, right? Not exactly. But you might have become an apprentice. We've invented the idea of this time in, in life when you're totally irresponsible, you're a teenager, you can't be held accountable for your actions. That didn't exist in God's economy. When God is your Father, He chastises you for His sin. This is in verses 5 through 9. We begin to look at the present. We fast forward. God's gone from bending down and feeding them. No, they're not children in the faith anymore. They have the law. They have the kingship. They have an economy. God's given them the land under Joshua's uh, leadership. They conquered it all from, uh, from hither to yon. They had everything that God had promised them. Still with some enemies to drive out. But what have they done? Well, they've rebelled against Him. You see, God is continuing to use this language that you can relate to. You know about teenage children and how they tend to rebel. They're looking to gain independence. Only in this case, independence from God is a horrible, wicked thing. But what does God cause us to focus on? Well, He causes us to focus on His restraint and discipline. Do you notice his restraint and discipline? Let's read verses 5 through 7. They shall not return to the land of Egypt. I'm not going to send them back to the place where they began. Instead, Assyria shall be their king. Now, to note, Egypt was still a superpower at this point. They was still a very powerful nation. Not quite as powerful as Assyria, but they were very powerful. In fact, Israel appealed to Egypt, come and help us. And so this section shows us how God restrained His discipline against them. You shall go instead to Assyria. They're not going to go back to where they began, but they're going to go into the hands of the mighty Assyrians. Now Assyria came against Israel during the reign of wicked king Menahem. To put this into a little bit of uh, historical context, remember that Israel and Judah were two separate king kingdoms. The northern kingdom never, ever had a good king. Every single one of them was wicked. And beginning with Ahab, they started to worship Baal. And you remember the scene of Elijah and the prophets of Baal who were cutting themselves. 
in 1 Kings chapter 18. Well, they've come down a little further now, and Menahem uh, is roughly the third from the last. There was Pekahiah after him, and then Pekah, and then all was lost. They began sacrificing their children to false gods and all of this. Well, in the reign of Menahem, I'm sorry, in the reign of Hosea, in the ninth year of Hosea, we read in 2 Kings 15, 19, the king of Assyria captured Samaria. Remember, that was the capital of the northern kingdom at that time. And he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Hala and on the Habor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. You know what he left? The scrapings of the town. The poor. He didn't take with him. Everyone else was taken into captivity. God is disciplining his people. How can we say that he is disciplining them? How can we say that he's treating them differently? Well, in this way, God's not doing anything to the Assyrians. He's not doing anything to the Babylonians. He's not speaking of it. He sent a prophet to Nineveh in Jonah. That was one instance. Not doing anything to the Egyptians. He's focused entirely on his children. You don't go out into the neighborhood and punish everybody else's children, do you? Now, you might be tempted to, but you treat your children differently. You hold them to a higher standard. You say you have to do the, you have to follow the house rules. If I tell you to be home at nine, I don't care what Tommy's mom says to him. The rule in our house is you got to be home at nine. The same thing holds true here. God is showing his love by disciplining his children. His children. He cares about them. But notice what he says. How can I give you up, O Ephraim, in verse 8? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? In other words, he's not going to do that. God is showing restraint. This is not the fullness of his wrath. Oh, no. Now, if he were to pour out the fullness of his wrath, what would happen? Well, he would cast them out entirely. All of his blessings would be taken away from them. They would become poor, and God would forget them forever. But God has love for his chosen people. Adma and Zeboim, as you read here, these were two cities that existed during the same time that Sodom and Gomorrah existed. And you remember what happened. God rained fire upon them and desolated those two places. And God is saying, I'm not going to do you like them. This is, he's saying, I'm not going to be the father that disciplines you to the point that I break you utterly and destroy you. God shows restraint. Why does he show restraint? Because he loves his children. And we ought to take away from this one simple thing. If God loves you, if he has set his love upon you, you know what he will do? He will discipline you. Tenderly, affectionately, kindly, but he will discipline you. He will turn you away from your sin. This is the language of Hebrews chapter 12. If you're a true son, God will discipline you. God disciplines his sons. He's not going to leave you in your sin. He's not going to let you sin and be uncorrected uh, uh, by him. How will he do that? Well, perhaps he will send you a loving friend. We talked about this on Wednesday night, didn't we? If we let the Word of God from a Colossians 3.16 dwell richly within us, what will we do? We will teach one another and what? 
admonish one another. Perhaps he will send you a friend or an elder in the church who will confront your sin. Who will say to you, you need to stop that. You're wandering into error. Or perhaps he will send you a pastor who will call you to repent of your sin. Think about Nathan and David. Can you imagine Nathan in that moment going to David and saying, you are the man after his sin with Bathsheba? But why did Nathan go? Because God sent him. And why did God send Nathan? Because God loved David. Sometimes the Lord will make your sinful ways unpleasant to you. I pray that. God, make sin something that I despise. Take all the joy away from sinning. That's what I want. I want Him to discipline me in that way so that I never find rebellion to Him a joyful or a pleasant thing. And that should be a prayer for every Christian. Oh Lord, please make sin unpleasant for me. Discipline me in that way. But in the very end, we understand that God's children are hidden in Christ. You are hidden in Christ. And as He disciplines you, He disciplines you as one whom He loves, never as you deserve. Why? Because Christ has borne the fullness of His wrath in your place. He can't pour it out upon you. He disciplines you as one whom He loves. And it is because God loves His children that He disciplines them. Remember, a father who spares the rod, what? Hates his child. Therefore, God doesn't leave you in your sins. Lastly, thirdly, and not only does God, in the the past, you can look back and see how God demonstrated His love for you by calling you to Himself, sending you a, 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 a set of parents who would train you in the way, sending you Sunday school teachers who taught you the Gospel, sending you pastors or missionaries who trained you in the Gospel. God called you to Himself. And in the present, God disciplines you. He keeps sin from becoming something pleasant. And then lastly, God demonstrates His love for you by keeping you for Himself. We see this in verses 10 and 11. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When He roars, His children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. He's calling them from every place. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Now, that's a significant thing. Let's look at this together. First, Israel will go after the Lord in verse 10. This could be translated, the Lord will roar like a lion and they shall march behind Him. I think that's the picture. You see, here's what's happening. God is coming as a lion to redeem His people and He is bringing them out of captivity. Isn't this the picture of Christ? The Lion of Judah who is going into all the earth. He is the mighty lion who draws His people out, breaking their bonds what to sin and Satan and delivering them. And what happens? They march after Him. Well, what does that mean? In His victory. We aren't attaining the victory for ourselves. We are in every way in this life, the church victorious as in a sense. We are marching behind Christ, praying and asking Him, Lord, cause Your kingdom to come. 
The Lord will roar like a lion and they shall march behind Him. We think about the captivity of Israel in 2 Kings chapter 17. It was compared to lions who come in and tear them. Remember that? Lord, You have torn us. In God's time, He, as the divine lion, will lead them back. In Genesis 49.9, Israel called his son Judah the lion, saying the scepter will not depart from Judah. In Revelation 5.5, Christ, the Lord, is called the lion of Judah who has conquered the enemies of his people. And you know what? His people walk behind him in safety. He doesn't turn you over to the devil. You are not subject to every whim of the devil in these days. God is keeping you for Himself. Why? Because He loves you. Now, you as His beloved people march behind the living Christ as your deliverer. Remember, He goes up and according to Ephesians 4, He delivers gifts to His people. Israel in verse 11 will return. The people are birds. God is a lion. And notice what He says. God will return them to their homes. Now, I think there's, a, there's some special language here. If you were to turn back with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6, God tells the people there that He's taking them into Canaan. And He says, when you go into Canaan, you're going to drink from wells that you did not dig. You're going to eat from crops that you did not plant. And you are going to live in houses that you did not build. And here, what does God say to them as the ultimate uh, blessing? I will return them where? To their homes. You think about the words of Christ when He said to His disciples, "Where where I am going, you will follow after Me. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am going to build a home for you. This is the picture of God's love for you. He will return you. And when when Christ returns and He renews the earth and His people inherit it, He's giving you a home. You won't build a home for yourself. He is giving you the earth to live in. God will restore all that was lost. Those whom God has called and who know His discipline can rest assured that God will never depart from them. If God has called you to Himself, He will never depart from you. He will never let you depart from Him. He will discipline you as a child. He's going to raise you all the way up to maturity and be your God in adulthood just as He was in your childhood. By His Spirit, He called you. By His Spirit, He teaches you. And by His Spirit, He will keep you forever for Himself. And for this reason, you, as His people, should be assured of His love in this life and in the life to come. In this passage, God communicates His love for His people in tender, affectionate words. Why? So that you can taste them. You can feel them. You know what this is like. 
The love that you and I have for others is a reference point by which we can relate to God's love for us. Even though it is now decayed and sinful, you love because God made you in His image. The Christian's confidence is that the love of God is better than human love. His love is perfect. It is unstained by sin. But God's love is also devotion. If you had a perfect parent, if you had a perfect parent, you would perfectly know what this love is. But God is your perfect parent. And He will never take His love away from those whom He has chosen for Himself. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, even as we reflect upon this and take it as a source of confidence that You love us, I ask that You would help each and every one of us to make this a part of our testimony. That every single one of us could leave here tonight saying, God loved me. God set His love upon me. God has demonstrated His love for me by sending His Son to die for my sins. God has sealed His love to me by giving me His Spirit, by causing sin to become unpleasant and distasteful in my life, and worship a true treasure. Oh, Father, we are Yours. Keep us for Yourself, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.